0: This is Bill Derski. You
1: are listening to Good
0: Heavens. In his 2010 fourth edition of Against Method, the late philosopher of science, Paul Feyerobin, observed that the state of scientific education today creates a climate of groupthink that actually hinders the advancement of science. Instead of rational open inquiry, Fire Robin believes that science today has become monolithically isolated and stultified. He opines, quote, scientific education simplifies science by simplifying its participants. First, a domain of research is defined. The domain is separated from the rest of history. Physics, for example, is separated from metaphysics and from theology and given a logic of its own. A thorough training in such logic then conditions those working in the domain, it makes their actions more uniform and freezes large parts of the historical process as well. Stable facts arise and persevere despite the vicissitudes of history. An essential part of the training that makes such facts appear consists in the attempt to inhibit intuitions that might lead to a blurring of boundaries. A person's religion, for example, or his metaphysics, or his sense of humor must not have the slightest connection with his scientific activity. His imagination is restrained, and even his language ceases to be his own. This is, again, reflected in the nature of scientific facts, which are experienced as being independent of opinion, belief, and cultural background." Of course, not all scientists fit Fire Robin's observations, but his insights may nevertheless serve to explain why many scientists outrightly reject intelligent design as a viable explanation for the many wonders and intricacies of the physical universe discovered by science in the last century. I asked our guest again this week, mathematician, philosopher, and founding and senior fellow with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, Dr. Bill Dembski, what he thought about why intelligent design is not favorably received in the wider scientific community.
1: I think to to keep intelligent design, this this possibility of real teleology, an intelligence behind the world, an intelligence that makes a substantive difference in biology, uh, they but I think the people just don't want to go there, and they're going to make sure that uh, if they have anything to say about it, that we don't go there.
0: It is, of course, not just secular science struggling against God's existence. It is all of our burden. Because of sin, we all often routinely turn a blind eye to God's handiwork. Were it not for the mercy and grace of Jesus, I certainly would not recognize or acknowledge God's existence or what he has made either. I had, and still do have, a fascination and a love of the heavens which I do believe declare the glory of God. Late Christian and chemist-turned-philosopher Michael Polanyi believed that in order for science to advance, the scientist must also have a similar love and fascination with his subject, engaging it in contemplative delight, not just adhering to the rote methods or tools of the trade. Polanyi, for example, notes, "...astronomic observations are made by dwelling in astronomic theory." And it is this internal enjoyment of astronomy which makes the astronomer interested in the stars. This is how scientific value is contemplated from within. But awareness of this joy is dimmed when the formulae of astronomy are used in a routine manner. Quote. In short, Polanyi argues that the methods, the adherence to a particularly dogmatic philosophical construct about one's discipline, or more colloquially... The idea that this is just the way we always do it, and always should do it, saps the scientists of his requisite joy and delight in the subject itself. Part of Polanyi's idea of the contemplative act of dwelling, delighting, and enjoying one's subject, however, can lead to discovery which Polanyi believes, quote, bursts the bounds of disciplined thought in an intense, if transient, moment of heuristic vision. And while it is thus breaking out, the mind is for the moment directly experiencing its content rather than controlling it by the use of any pre-established modes of interpretation. It is overwhelmed by its own passionate activity." Quote. But if one is pressured at all costs to repeat the party line, regardless of where the evidence may lead, the practice of one's discipline in the sciences becomes dull and routine. Those courageous enough to speak out against the inconsistencies between the party line and the actual evidence are quickly and resolutely, often publicly, excoriated, as was the case with the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel, who, in 2012, penned a small tome with a provocative title, Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Concept of Nature is Almost Certainly False. At the conclusion of the book, Nagel offers that, quote, I would be willing to bet that the present right thinking consensus will come to seem laughable in a generation or two. Though, of course, it may be replaced by a new consensus that is just as invalid. The human will to believe is inexhaustible. And as you can imagine, that sentiment did not sit too well with many naturalists and materialists. Consider for a moment the intricate motor-like mechanism known as the bacterial flagellum. This little wonder of biology was considered by many naturalists to be a phenomenal example of biological nanotechnology, the likes of which no human being has ever designed or conceived. Yet after the intelligent design movement gained a cultural foothold in the late 90s and early 2000s, Suddenly, the wondrous flagellum was being described as nothing more than an overly complicated Rube Goldberg contraption. But as Bill Dembski pointed out in our discussion, despite all the criticism leveled at intelligent design advocates regarding the flagellum, no naturalist to date has ever offered a concise step-by-step explanation of how this mechanism came to be by strictly natural means.
1: Evolution is a certainly darwinian evolution it's a naturalistic gradualistic uh step-by-step process so you have to have a fully articulated pathway or some rationale for thinking why there would be a gradual pathway to this system which requires at minimum about 30 protein parts and then there'll be multiple subunits of those of those parts so uh so they haven't explained it you have the system which gives all the hallmarks of intelligent design."
0: What indeed are the chances that such a mechanism could come about by strictly natural means? Dembski's design inference, however, doesn't just argue on chance alone, but by probability and specified complexity. As we continued our conversation, I mentioned to Bill that it seemed that it wasn't just biological nanotechnology that suggests design but that the mathematics and the laws of probability themselves also seem to be by design. Here again is Bill Dembski.
1: Well, it sure, it sure seems to be. I mean, it's uh, these these laws of probability, I mean, they're, they're mathematical results, they're limit theorems often, and yet they seem to very accurately model what actually happens in you know, real-world prob- probability situations. Uh, you know, but to your point about you know, hundred heads in a row or what, whatnot. I mean, the key concept from the design inference in that regard is that what counts as a small probability depends on. and This is a term of use in the book probabilistic resources. So, you know, when you say ten heads in a row, uh, if you can flip a coin a 2,000 times in a row you'll see 10 heads in a row with probability, you know, 50% or or better. Uh, I I could do the exact calculation. Uh, If you've got a million coin tosses, you're almost guaranteed to see 10 heads in a row. But uh, if you, on the other hand, 100 heads in a row, that's one in a thousand billion, billion, billion probability. Uh, I think they're only i've seen like 10 to the 16 10 to the 18 so one in a billion billion uh grains of sand you know uh so uh to get 100 heads in a row is like having one grain of sand painted orange and the rest are just not painted and by chance you know just in a giant urn swishing it around pulling out that one grain of sand so it's it's very 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 improbable but It raises the question, you know, how many beaches are there in the universe? You know, I mean, it may just be that, uh, you know, on planet Earth, there are only uh, a billion, billion grains of sand. But how many grains of sand are there anywhere, you know, in the universe? Are there other planets with water, Earth-like? And this is... uh, You know, this sort of move to expanding the probabilistic resources, there is a legitimacy to it. I mean, you might say, uh, you know, what's the probability of life originating by chance on planet Earth? Maybe it's very small, but maybe there are enough planets so that it could be more probable, But that still runs into a problem because the known physical universe is not all that big in terms of achieving things probabilistically. I mean, uh, you've got about 10 to the 90 elementary particles. Um, You know, there's a guy named uh, Seth Lloyd at MIT, quantum computational theorist. He'll imagine the entire universe as a computer and will say that uh, 10 to the 240 computations is about all we can fit into the known physical universe. Now that may sound like a lot, you know, it's one followed by 240 zeros, but the thing is, you know, guessing 13 uh march madness uh you know brackets exactly right would correspond to that, okay, that level of improbability or getting a an average sized protein just by chance getting exactly a given one, that's maybe, you know, three, 400 uh, amino acids in length. That would have that level of improbability. So getting to those levels of improbability with some pretty finite small systems is very easy. You know, this is why, I mean, even adding to computational power, I mean, we're seeing so much now with artificial intelligence and big tech, big data, uh, you know, so that there's a lot, of interesting stuff that's happened but there are computational pro- problems that are going to be completely beyond the reach of any computers that we will ever create even if the entire mm-hmm. universe were a computer you know so something like mm-hmm. traveling salesman problem when you've got a thousand uh thousand nodes an exact solution to that is going to resist anything that uh, the known universe can throw at it so this is this is you know th- this is this notion of probabilistic resources computational resources actually they end up being uh, pretty much equivalent notions but um you know so something is does not have small probability in and of itself you have to ask how many opportunities are there for that event in question to happen. And the universe only allows so many events, you know? And so that's, that's what we face. And that by the way, is, uh, is why there's this big push towards quantum many worlds, uh, the, the sorts of, you know, inflationary cosmologies where then you just vastly expand the probabilistic resources so that you can explain by chance what otherwise you would have to explain by design. Problem with that sort of approach is that it allows you to explain anything by chance? I mean, we're 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 talking. It seems like we know what we're dealing with. That we've got consciousness, thought. That we've been educated. But really, we may just be blithering idiots who know nothing about what we're saying. It's just that our vocal cords randomly are just uh, spewing out this language that seems to suggest that we know what we're talking about. You know, that's uh, that is, uh, and there's some pocket of the multiverse where that is happening, where we're just basically unconscious robots who are acting as though we know what we're talking about.
0: Hmm. I heard, uh, uh, I don't know if he's still at Stanford or not. Uh, physicist. I think he's emeritus at least uh, Leonard Susskind. Okay. Uh, and yeah. I think it was 2009 giving a lecture in uh, the Bay area and he somewhere in the lecture and it's on video and I can't remember the exact quote, but he's, he starts off by saying that everything that can happen Has happened in exactly kind of what you're saying that exponentially that if we grant a multiverse or Hugh Everett's many worlds, we just have an infinite subset of of many universes or many many worlds or many quantum fluctuations, whatever you want to say, that everything can happen. So as you just said, I think Max Tegmark at uh, MIT he has the book The Mathematical Universe, similar computational. Algorithm there that he lives in another universe where he's doing this and that and the other thing, uh, the doppelgangers and all of these all of these unseen metaphysical entities are invoked to increase the probabilistic chances of our being here in this universe on this planet in this way. Uh, that's that seems to be how many i mean you're familiar with the science side of this is that really something that that a lot of people are taking seriously to sort of go around the problem of of, of design of the design inference
1: yeah i mean you, you wonder what you know are they really taking it seriously or is it a pose you know just so that they can mm-hmm. be seen as taking these ideas seriously? Um, That's, that's a good, good question. Um, You know, I mean, to me, it's interesting that uh, you back up 100 years. And I mean, this is basically Nietzschean eternal recurrence. I mean, this is this is a philosophical view. This is not, you know, so now it's just that the physicists, they can, you know, throw, throw string theory or something at it, and then say, Yeah. And this is this is the the metaphysical implication or pretend that it's actually it is science when, in fact, they're doing metaphysics. Uh, So I think that's that's a problem. It's interesting. You know, Leonard Susskind, he was there, I believe, in the audience when Alan Guth first uh, proposed his uh, inflationary cosmology. And his reaction at the time was, quote, isn't it amazing what they pay us to do? Close quote. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah it's, it's like yeah you know right. so i i don't think he, i don't think he took it very seriously at the time but then these ideas just tend to gel and what is what is the alternative i mean i think the alternative is intelligent design in some ways some level and that is uh that's a bridge too far as far as these scientists yes are i mean what would yes, happen yes what would happen to right. mark's uh Reputation at MIT if uh, he suddenly declared for intelligent design, yeah, right?
0: Good question. I think it was Sean Carroll in his book Something Deeply Hidden, and he's a proponent, or he was back then. I don't know if he's changed his mind. Of Hugh Everett's uh, quantum many worlds, yeah. but Sean Sean sort of adroitly sort of passes by the implications and says it's the best explanation for our universe. Yeah, there might be other selves out there. I'm not going to take that too seriously. We're never going to bump into them. but yeah. I agree with Hugh Everett and the implications are that there are many worlds, many quantum fluctuations that have yielded this, but they, he just kind of ignores the the further implications of having a, an endless array of doppelgangers out there. Um, but it does seem to be if you're going to reject intelligent design, you have to come up with these um, unlikely, highly unlikely, um, unseen metaphysical entities or probabilities in that sense. Um, no conversation about intelligent design, Bill, would be complete without... Uh, the most uh, perfect machine in the universe, as was described by uh, someone that you quoted in your book. The bacterial flagellum seems <laughs> to have been the uh, the poster child for intelligent design in the last decade or so. And you outline in the book how there was this incredible fascination with this entity in the naturalistic sciences And then you, Michael Behe, Steve Meyer, uh, everybody sort of of begins to recognize how naturalists were awed by this entity, this biological entity, and started using it as a means of explaining what Michael Behe and you have called irreducible complexity. And I read Ken Miller's uh, Objection to your argument in the book that you co-edited with Michael Ruse. I read that uh, chapter. And and basically, let me... I may be getting this wrong, Bill, so please correct me or nuance it in any way that you want to, but my lay understanding of what I saw in this transaction about the flagellum and irreducible complexity boils down to if we look at a mousetrap, like Michael Behe has mentioned, and we take apart the mousetrap, it's no longer a mousetrap. And it no longer functions... Uh, in the sense of a mousetrap. And therefore, this is, in a sense, irreducibly complex. You pop off the spring, take away the board. It's no longer a mousetrap. It no longer functions. But Miller's critique of that, Bill, seems to be, well, don't intelligent design theorists know that there are a thousand other uses for wood or metal, and therefore the mousetrap is not irreducibly complex? It, It seems to be that's what they've done with the flagellum. They've taken a part of it and said, look, it works over here, therefore the argument from irreducible complexity fails. But yet Miller never explains, nor does anybody ever explain in the naturalistic sense, the step-by-step evolutionary development of the flagellum and how it came about. So is is that an accurate sort of summation of what's going on there with the flagellum? Maybe just tell us what it is yeah. and fill in the gaps for what I've missed there.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So the flagellum, it's this bidirectional, motor-driven propeller that moves bacteria through their watery environment, certain bacteria. Uh, it can spin up to 100,000 RPM, change direction in a quarter turn. Uh, there are different flagella. There's, uh, there's uh, some that have a proton pump motor. Uh, extremely efficient, almost 100% efficient. I mean, humans have to have not devised anything at that level of efficiency. When it was first uh, discovered, people were in awe. It's interesting as a reaction to intelligent design. Now you have people who are describing it as poorly designed, as a kludge or or whatnot. I mean, I think it's Rube Goldberg, you know. Um, So, but to your point, I mean, irreducible complexity – This is a term that Michael Behe introduced, and he defined it specifically as a a multi part system where if you remove any part, uh, the system will cease functioning. But by cease functioning, it's not going to be able to do what its primary function is at this point. It doesn't mean that you can't take out a part and have it do something different. Okay. I mean, I've in public lectures, you know, I've taken a motorcycle, you can take the motor out of it and Run the motor and it can act as a heater, you know, but at that point it's doing something different from a, a motorcycle. And then there are nuances, you know, is it that you have, if you remove, what happens if you remove a part and then it's connected to another thing and then that other part is just kind of flapping around and causes the the system to shut down, you know, so maybe you've got two parts that really are unnecessary. And if you remove both of them, then you recover the function. So, you know, so then what you need to say is it's not just by removing one part, but by removing any subset of parts, you can't recover the original function. Okay. Uh, And so Ken Miller though, will want to say that uh, it's, illegitimate to use the term irreducible complexity because you can always find a subsystem that's doing something else. Well, you know, he's, he's changing the definition at that point. Uh, So, so the question then becomes though, can you evolve to something like the flagellum through a gradual step by intermediate step pathway? And the only thing, I mean, I have, you know, it was funny writing now the second edition of the design inference. I came back to it. And there's a whole chapter on biology with the bacterial flagellum. And you see that this, uh, you know, there is no, uh, the only thing that evolutionists point to with the flagellum is a, uh, it's called the type three secretion system, which is basically a little pump uh, that pumps, you know, actually pumps poisons into uh the multi-celled organisms like ourselves. I mean, it's the poison delivery system for Yersinia pestis, the uh, bubonic plague bacterium. Uh, So you find a subsystem. Okay. Uh, there's this system. And the the reason you've got that system in the flagellum is because the flagellum, when it's formed, it's, it's a long whip-like tail and you've got to secrete that whip-like tail. And so you need a secretion system. And so there is a connection, uh, but there's always a question when you are saying one thing evolved to the other, well, which was first, which was second, because, you know, evolution would also allow you have this more complicated thing, the flagellum, and then you remove some things to get to the, um, to the, the type three secretion system. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, evolution of uh, eye evolution for cave fish. You know, the cave fish, they lose the site because they're in these dark caves where they don't need it, use it or lose it. But, you know, the question is not how did they lose the site? The question is how did they get the eyes in the first place? That's the sort of, you know, question you, you need to be always asking. So, I mean, Ken Miller has done nothing to explain how the bacterial flagellum might actually have evolved because an evolution, evolution is a uh, certainly Darwinian evolution. It's a naturalistic, gradualistic uh, step-by-step process. So you have to have a fully articulated pathway or some rationale for thinking why there would be a gradual pathway to this system, which requires at minimum about 30 protein parts. And then there'll be multiple subunits of those of those parts so uh so they haven't explained it you have the system which gives all the hallmarks of intelligent design um you know insofar as you can do probability calculations it's it's hard with these systems because they're not toy problems you know and then you and it's not just how did these things if you just had a scrabble box with all these proteins and you just shoved them together would you get this system because there's The the evolutionist was going to to want to say there's a gradual path, you know, how these things were put together. So, it's uh, you know, it's it's uh, I think uh, a difficult problem to actually evaluate the probabilities. But you know, where I would go with this further is to say. The flagellum is great as an intuition pump, but I think you, there are systems which are much clearer and cleaner if you want to draw design inference that are where where they are irreducibly complex. So for instance, something like uh, a ribosome or the uh, genetic copying machinery in cells. The thing is, what subsystems could you pull out that you can say evolved into those systems? The thing is, those systems are not just irreducibly complex; they are necessary for life. So you can't simplify them. We have no example of where they are simplified and then you have a living system. You simplify them, and you're dead. And if you're dead, you're really not a viable candidate for evolution. So, mm. so this is this becomes, I think, a much uh, harder case for the evolutionist because in that case, you can't just say, oh, there's some subsystem that could perform a function because the subsystem can't sustain life as such. You need yeah. ribosomes to build the proteins to sustain life. You need the genetic right. copying mechanisms. So I think that, you know, I've called that, uh, in the design inference second edition, I'll call that bioimperative imperative irreducible complexity. So it's bioimperative. It's, you know, you need it for life as such. Uh, You know, so people speculate, you know, well, maybe, you know, we've got this these triplet codons. So maybe there was, uh you know, doublet codons at some earlier point. Well, that, that sounds great, but we have absolutely no example of anything like that. It seems like the triplet codons kicked in right after the earth cooled enough. And we got, you know, I think it's within 10 million years that life is supposed to have, Emerged after the the Earth got uh, got to a place where it could support life. Uh, so and then we've had it ever since. So what you know what, what you know there's there's no history of these doublets going to triplets. So it becomes very very speculative at that point. So yeah, uh, yeah. I think these the, these bio imperative irreducible irreducibly complex systems uh, take the sort of bacterial flagellum example a step further.
0: Yeah. And I think one thing that uh, Steve has, Steve Meyer has pointed out repeatedly, you have mentioned in your book, um, and many intelligent design theorists have, have put this forward is this idea of just how important and inexplicable to, to, to a naturalistic worldview is the top down information problem in biology. It seems that information is essential because physical biology talks about physical systems and physically how did they come to be, but it seems also requisite. To have information guiding the physical systems, and this is a, still a, a huge problem for for naturalistic theory because how do you how do you explain how information arises from pure physical mechanisms? Um, that that's a huge component to this too, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean, it raises the question also: what is the source of the information, and what is the type of interaction? I mean, I, I have sympathies toward vitalism. I mean, it seems to me that uh, physical that our organisms life as we know it uh has access to information sources that cannot simply be reduced to sort of analytic you know slice it dice it you know i mean and i think an example of of that is you know you've got origin of life research which often tries to get uh to realistic prebiotic environments okay so where you've got certain hydrothermal vents or whatever but um you know, what happens with these uh, when you've actually got a full cell and you just prick it, let the contents out, everything there for a cell is available. Now put Humpty Dumpty back together again and make it alive. You know,
0: <laughs> there's, <laughs> right. there's.
1: I mean, th- this is, you know, it, it, it. nobody knows how to do that. So you've got all the constituents of life, but you don't have life. You know? mm. So that's mm. uh, I think that that becomes becomes a real challenge. So absolutely, uh, you know. So I think there's, I think we can we can talk about the information problem on the Darwinists own terms because I think they've got problems on their own terms if we just look at, you know, just take an analytic approach. But you know, when you're talking top down, that's more of a synthetic approach. You know, how does it all tie together? And uh, you know, there are thinkers who've. Uh, uh, taken that line and said, you know, thinking of life hierarchically, uh, John Polkinghorne, in terms of active information, there's a uh, Wolfgang Smith, uh, where he'll look at vertical causation in contrast to horizontal causation. He sees that vertical causation as being necessary for producing irreducible complexity. So he engages the, uh, Uh, intelligent design literature in that way.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it was uh, David Glertner, if I'm pronouncing his last name right, computer scientist who was convinced by uh, uh, one of Steve's books, um, Mm -hmm. not not a theist, but certainly convinced that uh, Darwinian explanations are unsatisfactory. I think it was the Royal Society in, uh, what was it, 2012, they convened to try to come up with some alternative explanations for what they're finding in biology and physics today because the naturalistic neo-Darwinian conception of, of biology seems to be in need of a paradigm overhaul. And, and I was watching another interview of you um, this morning uh, talking about how ironic it seemed to be, especially with your experience at Baylor, how some Christians were, were sort of cozying up to Darwin at the very moment the ideas making inroads. Into revealing the problems at the base level with with Darwinian evolution, and a lot of evangelicals seem to want to go the other way and cozy up to Darwin intellectually for maybe, I don't know, intellectual respectability or something like that. But uh, I am so appreciative of what your work has done, and what ID does, and what Steve does, and what you guys do, because it's it's been a it's been a wonderful, refreshing, and encouraging. A means of understanding that that this is a real issue, the design inference is is there and it's present in nature and we can mathematically and in a lay sense understand um, what's going on here. So uh, so thank you first and foremost, Bill, yeah. for your pioneering work. I know it cost you a lot on the personal level, and I know that uh, it hasn't always been easy for you to to bear. Um, but um, it, it, it does seem that 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 at base, and I, it's always hard to judge human motives, but it, it does seem to be that the general opposition to this isn't, oh, yeah, this this looks designed. It seems to be more like we are we want to avoid the implications. Um, Richard Lewontin, his famous quote, we can't yeah. let a divine foot in the door. It seems to be – and you know, as we wrap up here, do you think that – I mean, it's hard, again, it's hard to judge motives, but do you think that the big pushback against ID – is avoiding the implications of there being a designer. Would that be fair? I,
1: I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, and I, I try not to put people on the couch, but you know, when you, I look at, for instance, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned raw society, there was an Altenburg 16 or so. This, this goes back some years, but you have, you have these different groups that come together and say, Hey, existing paradigm isn't working. Okay. You've got the third way with James Shapiro. Uh, but then uh, you know when it comes to closing ranks and saying, hey wait, you know uh, Darwinism is all we've got. We need a textbook orthodoxy. We can't tell high school and college kids that you know everything is up for reevaluation so then they present a united front Now not I'm not saying that for the, for the third way or others. I think there are there are people who are going to say, hey, There really is a problem. But I think I've seen it, for instance, with Francisco Ayala, where he will write a book, Darwin's Gift, where it's Darwin nailed it exactly right. You know, everything is right with the world because of Darwin. And then he's I see him in interviews where he's saying we're gonna have to fundamentally rethink some things. So it's Mm. talking out of both Mm. sides of the mouth. And it's I think to to keep intelligent design this this possibility of real teleology an intelligence behind the world, an intelligence that makes a substantive difference in biology, uh, They, I think the people just don't want to go there. And they're going to make sure that uh, if they have anything to say about it, that we don't go there. And so that's why Absolutely. we, on the intelligent design front, we just keep pressing away and uh, we've got to speak the truth as we know it and get the ideas out.
0: Absolutely. Final thought for our audience, really quickly in 30 seconds. How do we go from... Intelligent design to Jesus to Christianity is that too many steps to explain in thirty seconds? Or what? What would be your your advice about how to bridge that gap? Yeah, I,
1: I'm. I don't see that there's a direct path in the sense that Jesus is the designer, you know, or anything like that. But I, what I, where I see intelligent design's role in apologetics, and this is what apologetics profile the program is that it clears away so much of the rubbish. In our culture, in the our educational system, that tries to make it implausible to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to believe that the Bible is an accurate accounting of what God has done in salvation history. So, you know, there's traditionally two books, you know, of Revelation is the book of nature, the book of Scripture. And I think what intelligent design does is it gets right the book of nature. And if we get the book of nature wrong it's going to have we're going to have problems understanding the book of scripture so that's that's where i see its role
0: lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one of them is missing. When I consider Thy heavens, the work of Thy fingers, the moon and the stars which Thou hast ordained, what is man that Thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that Thou dost care for him? Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deep look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design.